0: available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes, upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com/milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q u i n c e dot com/milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com/milkstreet. This is Mostly Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Janice Poon is the person to call when you need edible amniotic fluid for the fictional birth of the devil. As Hollywood's go-to expert for gruesome and sometimes challenging food styling, she takes us behind the scenes of some of her most famous creations, such as the 30-foot Subway sandwich, fake meat for a vegan vampire, and arm escargot using real snails.
1: Yes, there was a snail wrangler. The snails are so, I mean, talk about divas. They want to go left, and you can't make them go right. They were always crawling the wrong direction. It took forever to get that shot.
0: Also on the show, Bianca Bosker wonders what makes a PB&J the perfect sandwich. And we make a Vietnamese beef stew with lemongrass. But first, it's my interview with George Motes. He's the host of the online series, Burger Scholar Sessions. George, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. You're a professor of burgers. Um, At least that's one way to describe it. You're not a fan of big chains. You're looking for something quite different. So what are your rules about what defines a great American burger joint? Well, to me, a
2: great American burger joint is one that takes the craft and the history very seriously. I mean, there have been chains that have been around for a long time, of course, as we know, Uh, But some of the best to me are the mom-and-pops in small towns that have just been doing it the same way they've been doing it for sometimes four and five generations.
0: We're talking about places that the ownership has probably stayed in the same family most of the time, fresh meat. Are there any other rules about how they prepare the burgers or anything else?
2: Yeah, to me, I mean, obviously fresh meat is number one on the list. You have to use fresh meat. Uh, frozen beef is a big no-no in my book, and there are a lot of places that have been around for a long time that are unfortunately still using frozen meat. That's a big rule. Another one is that you have to appreciate your own history. There are a lot of regional burger specialties out there that are are true to themselves because they've stayed so true to their core and the original burger that they may have made over 100 years ago.
0: And there's a quote here. It says, Moat says, ketchup is the worst thing you can put on a burger, end quote, right? Yeah, you
2: know, it's funny. I'm not being contrarian. It's actually true. I think that a hamburger... Is so much greater than ketchup. Ketchup is very sweet. And I, I, for unfortunately, ketchup, when it comes to the hamburger, has a very bad history, I believe. Uh, arguably, it was uh, introduced by chains in the 40s to get kids, get children excited about oh. hamburgers. We add a little bit of a sweet component to a hamburger, and the, and the idea is the kids would eat their burgers more. Huh. But to me, ketchup on a burger is okay if it's mixed into a sauce, if it's just on there directly. It's just, it's a really, really horrible condiment to add to a burger on its own.
0: Okay, the burgers. You say Dyer's deep fries its burgers, and they've been recycling its grease for about 90 years now. <laughs> so so tell me about the deep fried burger.
2: Yeah, Actually, we think it's probably over 100 years, I think, at this point. So yeah, they've been deep frying burgers in what they say is the original grease from, from day one. It sounds insane, a deep fryer burger, but if you think about it, in the beginning, there were no flat tops. There were no flame grills you'd find in your backyard. In the very beginning, people made burgers in skillets, but the problem, of course, is that burger grease or the rendered beef fat tallow would collect when you'd end up deep frying your burgers.
0: Um, steam burgers in Connecticut—you uh, say it's it's ugly. But it's also one of the tastiest. I mean, if you like a deep fried burger, it would seem to me the steamed burgers at the opposite end of the uh, the burger rainbow. Right? Definitely
2: the opposite, for sure. Uh, it is a it's an amazing burger experience because when you bite into this burger, it's so moist uh, and it, it, it's just it's a very beefy experience. And uh, with, of course, the, the upside to this is that it's not just about the beef. You, if you go to places in, in uh, central Connecticut, like a place called Ted's in Meriden, what they'll actually do is they'll take a block of cheddar cheese, very mild, melty cheddar cheese, and they'll steam that as well and pour that on top of the hmm. this sort of gray hmm. block, this, this very soft gray matter. I mean, you think about it also, it's very close to the kind of meat you'd find in a dumpling, which is also steamed.
0: Right. So let's talk about the butter burger. What is a butter burger?
2: Only, of course, in Wisconsin can you can you have a butter burger. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> the butter burger, you know, the fewer ingredients you have, they all have to be the best ingredients you can find. And if you have a burger that has nothing on it than beef, bun, and butter, that better be good butter, right?
0: <laughs> but, but I think you point out that the butter, you don't want it to melt, though. So when you eat it, it's still supposed to be solid, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you go to a place like Solly's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, they make sure that they get that burger to your place at the counter as fast as possible because they know that the real experience is being able to bite into the semi-soft butter that's, that's still in that state before it melts completely. Also, once, once, the, once a butter burger um, becomes melty— uh, it, it destroys the bottom of the bun anyway, so you have to eat the burger pretty fast. But one thing you do find yourself doing if you're at Sally's is that you do take, you know, the, your half-eaten burger and you dip it back into the into the melted butter on the plate, and it's it's impossible not to.
0: Uh, the nut burger. Okay, so really, you you take crushed Sunday nuts, put them in a coffee cup, and stir it with a bit of Miracle Whip then ladle it onto the burger. You want to defend that one to me? Yeah, this is the specialty of the house of a
2: place called Matt's Place
0: uh, in
2: Butte, Montana. Uh, And it really is uh, one of those uh, things I've assumed was not going to work. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Miracle Whip, and especially... I was thinking of nuts on my burger. It didn't make a lot of sense. But the idea of like, you know, we all love, you know, uh, salted peanuts, you know, on, if you want, if you have it on ice cream or whatever. And it made sense on ice cream for me, but I, not in a burger. But then I tried it. and Then I said, OK, this is definitely the reason people buy this and order this burger at Matt's place, because it is that good. And it's,
0: again, it's only three ingredients. It's very simple. Unlike the San Antonio bean burger with Fritos, Cheese Whiz, and refried beans on top of your burger, right? Right. That is a
2: hyper-regional specialty of San Antonio, Texas, right there. Refried beans on top of the burger with uh, nacho cheese sauce or melted cheddar or something and corn chips. Or in, in the original case, it was Fritos.
0: You seem to find a lot of charm in the Mississippi Slug Burger. It's kind of an interesting story. You want to describe what that is? Yeah, the Slug Burger... Uh, goes back, I think it's before the Depression.
2: Uh, there were you know, hard times in the South. They were trying to find ways to stretch their meat. And what made the most sense was to take yesterday's bread and add it to the meat. There's some weird science going on there that nobody understood, I guess, at the beginning, which makes perfect sense, is that when, once you add breadcrumbs to meat and you start to cook it on a flat top, all that rendered beef fat goes into the crumbled bread and makes it a crunchy, very flavorful burger.
0: Let's go back to the places you celebrate on your show. Um, These are mom-and-pop places, generally speaking. How do they fit into this new generation, and they want to know the origin of the meat and the bun? And it seems to be they're almost antithetical to that whole concept of telling the story. The story is that it's a mom-and-pop place that's been in their family for two generations, right?
2: That's the story. The problem is every single mom, mom and pop that I've become friends with in America, a lot of times they don't know their own value. They don't even know why they're important right. to the bigger picture. They don't know why someone else is copying their burger in Argentina or why somebody is you know wants to get them on the phone for an interview in Japan. They have no idea why, and I, I find that fascinating.
0: So are they gonna be relics of the America's culinary past at some point in the near future? Or do you think they're in for a period of renewal because that's where the market's headed?
2: They're unquestionably in for a period of renewal, and I believe it's going to last for a little while here because people are start. People want real things. People actually want to know that the thing they're eating or the experience they're having is is authentic. And uh, these places actually help make that authentic moment real.
0: George, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being on Milstreet. Street. Thanks for having me. That was George Motes. He's the host of Burger Scholar Sessions and also author of The Great American Burger Book. Now it's time for my co-host, Sarah Moulton-I, to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she stars in Sarah's weeknight meals on public television.
3: Hi, Sarah. Do you want to take the first call? Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: Hi, this is Amy from Raleigh. How can we help you today?
1: So, I have a question about the differences between black pepper and white pepper. I recently started using white pepper. This just, I saw it online and was like, I don't really know what the difference is, but I'm going to go ahead and try it. I've noticed that it seems to work better on salads and like raw stuff rather than in cooking. So, I was just wondering if there's any
4: like hard and fast rules on when to use black pepper and when to use white pepper.
3: Let's start with your opinion. Why do you think it works better on salads and vegetables? When you say better, what do you mean?
4: It seemed to like release a different type of flavor. Like, I guess it wasn't as harsh as black peppercorn. It was weird because it seems subtle, but it also seemed to stand out.
3: <laughs> I know. It's very interesting. Okay, well, black peppercorn still has the husk on it. So it's harvested yes. and then it's dried. And the white peppercorn has the outer layer removed and then it's dried. And so it's sort of like those components that are in that outer layer, the black part of the pepper, are what give black pepper, I think it's, I would say, almost pungency or pop, Mm -hmm. you know. White pepper, although you said, you know, it's interesting, it still seems spicy, but it's a different kind. Asian cultures really use white pepper a lot, Chinese cooking. Chris, what do you want to say about this?
0: Well, there's nothing wrong with black pepper. It has its place, but white pepper is more floral. It's more complex. It's more fleeting. You know, it doesn't last as long as pepper will in the mouth. So I would just think of them as spices in the cabinet along with the other spices. For subtlety and aroma, I would go with white pepper. And a black pepper is, you know, more to hit you over the head with something strong. Right, Sarah?
3: Yeah, I'd actually agree with all of that. What? Yeah. Yeah. I know. What's going on? I agree. <laughs>
0: but there's also, I mean, there's Aleppo pepper. or Urfa. There's uh, Urfa pepper, which is fabulous, which is sort of soft flakes, which is kind of chocolatey. I mean, there's Cambodian peppers, which are totally different. So I just think there's a whole world of peppers out there, dried peppers. And I should do an ad for the, the Pepper Institute, right? Yes, you should. A whole <laughs> new world of peppers. But uh, you're right. White and black are very different. So
3: there's no hard and fast rule. It's really a matter of preference.
0: And we keep a pepper grinder on your counter with white and then one with black.
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah. I have both sitting on my counter right now, and I've been kind of using them alternately. <laughs> yes. Good for you. <laughs> okay.
3: Well, this was an interesting conversation. Thanks, Amy. Yeah. yeah. Thanks yeah, for calling. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help solving a culinary mystery, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time. or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mary from Lebanon, New Hampshire. Hi, Mary. What can we do for you today? First, I want to say that I enjoy your show and I appreciate the opportunity to have a question that I had on my mind for a while. Happy to be here. Oh, wonderful. All right. I always hear about cooking my bacon in the oven instead of on the stovetop. My concern with doing this is that it would spatter in the oven, and I would need to clean my oven more frequently. I have a self-cleaning oven and hate wasting the electricity to run the cleaning cycle more frequently. Can you help me with that? Years ago, I taught at this school called Peter Kump's New York Cooking School. And that was the first I'd ever heard about baking bacon. I thought it was so weird. And the reason he suggested that we teach that way was uh, to have the bacon not cook in its own fat and also to have it lie flat. Right. You know, when you cook bacon in a pan, it all curls up. Oh, exactly. So the way we did it, you line your sheet pan with sides, you know, like a large jelly roll pan, Mm -hmm. with foil. And then I put a cake rack in it, or a square cookie rack, really, that fits inside. Right. I don't just put the bacon right on the foil. Right. I put it on the rack, and then I lay out the bacon with a little space in between, and then just bake it that way, and as long as you don't bake it at too high a temperature, you can go with 350, 375. It won't spatter, especially if it's lined with foil, you should be just fine, and the bacon really comes out beautifully. Oh,
0: Sarah, didn't you just make a broiler
3: I mean, certainly you could use a broiler pan. Yeah. Certainly you could. And then it would be enclosed. But the holes in the top, they're too narrow. Well, that's The thing true. with a cookie rack is that there's so much more room for the fat to come down.
0: I did find, I read somewhere, that you could, in a skillet, I add some water to the skillet when cooking bacon on the stovetop. And that avoids a lot of the splattering at the beginning. But also the bacon turns out to be ah, flat. Interesting because it gives you a sort of even layer of liquid to cook it in. And then, of course, the water right. you know evaporates over time. That seems huh. to work out pretty huh. well, too. Okay. All
3: right. Great. Right. Well, That's there's two, wonderful. two possibilities. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks, Mary. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Mary. Take care.
0: Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, food stylist Janice Poon tells us how she feeds cannibals and aliens. That's right up after the break.
5: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
6: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: This is Mo Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with food stylist Janice Poon. She got her start working on the Nero Wolfe TV series. She later developed a specialty for making horror and science fiction dishes on the sets of the Hannibal TV series, Star Trek Discovery, American Gods, and more. Janice, welcome to Mill Street.
1: Oh, I'm just so thrilled to be here.
0: You have quite a CV, but my favorite description of you is, quote, the expert to call when you need edible amniotic fluid for the fictional birth of the devil. <laughs> Now, that's like, did you ever think your career would come down to that description?
1: You know, so often I find myself looking up and saying, how did this happen to me? Mm. Where have I gone wrong where I find myself, you know, knee deep in amniotic fluid or, or loose oatmeal, really? A lot of loose oatmeal.
0: So you're an unlikely person, I guess, because you grew up in a small Canadian town. Your family ran restaurants. You thought at the time you would never want to get involved with food again. You'd pretty much had it,
1: right? So I think my grandfather won a restaurant in a Mahjong game or something and was <laughs> having a terrible time. When, but my dad sort of took it over when he was like 16 and um, made a go of it and built, huh. you know, what was considered in our very small town a kind of an empire. But I do know a lot about food because when you grow up in a restaurant, and of course, small family restaurant means that you're doing all the mise en place before you go to school, that sort of thing. And um, so I, I thought I would be an artist because I thought that was pretty far away from food. So I took commercial art classes and promptly went to work for one of those big fat ad agencies. But what um, happened to me is that fate decided to throw food accounts at me. Hmm. So all of my accounts were, you know, like McDonald's, Kraft. And there was always this person in the kitchen, toiling away, doing really bizarre things to the food to make it look natural. And I and I just thought, well, that, that's just kind of hilarious.
0: So how did you get your first styling gig on the Nero Wolf TV series?
1: So um, I was busily doing something else, as I always am. I probably was having a store at the time, or maybe I was designing ball gowns for princesses. I can't remember. <laughs> but a dear friend of mine was offered the job, and um, she just didn't feel up for it. And she said, well, is it something you'd be interested in? Would, do you think you could do it? And I thought, you know, why not? And thankfully, I managed to get through without being discovered as a um, neophyte.
0: But, but Nero Wolf, I've, I've read all of his books like five times. Oh, he, he's, he's wonderful. He was a great gourmand and gourmet. Yeah, he yeah. had a private chef, as I remember. And yeah, it was Fritz. actually Fritz, and he had a Nero Wolf cookbook, was actually published later on. But yes. so th- this was not humdrum. This was in hamburgers. I mean, he, he, this is pretty serious food, right?
1: It was. Uh, but it, and it was so much fun. But I didn't just leap into food styling for episodic television, and then just stay there. After Nair Wolf, I was probably doing sculptures for restaurants and hotels at that time.
0: This is your 30-foot Subway sandwich period?
1: Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) Oh, Christopher, you know everything. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying,
0: (laughs) it's a long way from Nair Wolf TV series to the (laughs) 30-foot Subway sandwich.
1: (laughs) You know what's funny about that? I was um, making this 30-foot Subway, and of course, I live in a 20-foot loft. So I was building the Subway sandwich literally on my stairs, (laughs) on a slope.
0: So let's get back to movies for a second. You say that movie food has to be edible because if the director wants them to be eating on camera, they have to have that option? Is that why it has to be edible? Yes,
1: yes, because you might think, and it might say in the script, that um, David digs into a delicious roast turkey – But David, the actor, doesn't feel like eating roast turkey. And then he picks something on the table that you've only got three of (laughs) and says, I feel like my character would eat this. Oh, boy. I remember once that happened to me with broccoli. At the last minute, I thought, I'm just going to throw this piece of broccoli on as a garnish. And everything is fine, except that the actor decided that broccoli was what he wanted to eat. And, you know, they do sometimes take 20 times to get their lines. So you have to sit the same dish over and over and over again. Then you get somebody like Jillian Anderson, who must have downed three dozen oysters in one shoot, like a, a crazy number of oysters in a shoot.
0: I don't know if you know a lot about the history of this, but has food styling in the last 30, 40 years changed dramatically? I would assume, given technology and other things, it has.
1: Oh, listen, I have been at this for a while. And I remember back in the day, like a big TV was like, you know, 20 inches. We did a scene once, and the director decided that we didn't have enough people eating in the, in the restaurant in the background, and he wanted to see more food. And we didn't have more food. Mm. <laughs> uh, he said, well, how about salad? Yeah, yeah, salad's okay. Serve them all salad. So we just um, <laughs> had a bunch of food coloring and colored a, a bunch of uh, paper towels <laughs> and crinkled it up. <laughs> I know it's terrible, isn't it? Really? Would I lie to you? Because well, no, no but I so mean, paper towels for have... salad, oh, for yeah. lettuce, you could really? get away with stuff like that. Yeah.
0: So let's take a left turn into the horror genre. So you show up on the Hannibal TV set on the first day you show up with a bunch of pig's lungs, right? <laughs> I know. And then you go on and say, do you want a grisly bruised lung that's purple and frightening, or do you want something lovely and pink and almost a pillow? So these are the kinds of considerations you put yeah. to the fore on the set. Yeah.
1: yeah. We were really just new into the series, and everybody was just trying to figure out the sensibility. Like, was it gory horror, or was it... A romance. I mean, that's the whole thing that's so magical about film, about TV and movies is that it is highly collaborative. You know, I was taking inspiration from the costume designers and from the set designer, and it's like a little, you know, jazz thing going on.
0: So one of your most famous uh, food creations is the arm escargot. <laughs> exactly what does that mean?
1: <laughs> well, of course. I mean, there are grisly things done beneath the midnight sun and snails eating Flesh is one of them that a lot of people don't know that uh, snails are are not that fussy about what they eat. But there's a great hmm. long history, of course, as well with snails where the Romans had, um, what did they call them? Well, anyway, little snail farms. Uh, Cochlear Gardens, that's what they called them. They didn't call them little snail farms because they're much classier than that, right? And they would feed snails certain types of things so they would taste a certain way.
0: But you actually had real snails in this? You had a snail oh my God.
1: wrangler? Yes, I mean, there was a snail wrangler. The snails are so... I mean, talk about divas. They want <laughs> to go, you know, left and you can't make them go right. And it's hard to figure out what, like, do they go towards the heat? They were always crawling the wrong direction. It took forever to get that shot.
0: Um, I think the most disgusting thing, oddly enough, though, on your blog, was the fake innards for roadkill.
1: Oh, those were so cute. How well, can they, you yeah, say but, they were...
0: Well, it looked like someone had just run over a chipmunk and well. all his guts spewed out. <laughs> well, another example you talk about I love this. You have a vegan vampire.
1: <laughs> oh my God. I I'm know. Like, you know, talk, like, talk why? about bad casting. I you know. know. Her character is a vampire queen, of course, and she's visiting her unknowing next door neighbor and the next door neighbor is making hamburger meatballs and our vampire queen hasn't had a drink in quite a long time and she sees this bloody meat and she her little hand just you know snakes out to grab it and gobble it while the neighbor's back is turned and our actress wouldn't eat ground meat of course and so I made some out of you know beets and potatoes and and it looked exactly like ground meat so much so that when she got to set she wouldn't eat it because it looked too much too real too too real so they um shot it a different way so she could just um hide behind her hair or something
0: (laughs) so space whale steaks i think you did this on star trek discovery Uh, how do you make those what are they made out of
1: Making giant space whale meat is not a problem. Making giant space whale meat for a vegetarian actor is a problem. (laughs) But if there were not such problems, I would not have a job. These challenges are such that I'm the only one who will step forward and say, oh yeah, that's no problem. Um, I happen to remember a Chinese dessert that my mother used to make out of chestnut flour. Because of what it is with meat, it's got kind of this floppy texture,
3: right.
1: and for a sushi intergalactical sushi joint, uh the chef wants to be able to slash it into pieces and flick it to the um his customers on the edge of his blade, so it has to be just the right texture so you get a
0: script and obviously describes the food in very general terms, from an artistic point of view how do you go from script to actually sketching out the food? Do you do you actually sketch things out? I mean, physically sketch out, what do you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Physically sketch things out because that helps me see how it fits on a plate. I could see how it fits in perspective.
0: So you, you sketch out the arm escargot and you have notes in the,
1: <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. in the margins. Yeah. And lots of times the sketches don't make it to fruition. When it comes to designing The dish almost designs itself, should I say, because you read the story and you think, why is this scene in this script? Because everything you do has to inform the viewer in some way, something more about the plot, something more about the people. Like this particular scene that we just shot, uh, the script just says the emperor sits down for a bowl of soup. And something, a bowl of soup. Why is he having a bowl of soup? Because a bowl of soup is a restorative. He's just been on a long journey through space. And so it's logical that he would have a bowl of soup. He wouldn't have the stomach for a bigger meal. And so, what else about this bowl of soup do I want to tell? And I think, well, he's traveling. He is alone because nothing defines an emperor more than aloneness. And he's in space, right? So I wanted the other platters on the very long dining room table to represent planets like floating. I wanted to go for like a lonely space traveler, lonely planet kind of feeling. And so the images come from the idea behind the images.
0: So do you you have philosophical discussions with people about which food is right for that situation when the other person doesn't really care whether it's an apple or a bowl of soup?
1: Well, I think that it's part of my job to sell. It's not just my job to design the food. It's part of my job to make the actor feel like he's really in the scene. Right. To add to the ambience so that he doesn't feel like he's on a set. He feels like he's really in a palace. So you try to make everybody's job easier. And um, a side uh, benefit is that your food gets noticed. And then the director says, oh, I really want to show that.
0: You love doing this, obviously. You've been doing it a long time. Where's the joy excitement? Is it the creativity of solving the problem for the food in the script? Is that what it is?
1: That's always fun. But the real joy, weirdly, comes when you avert a massive disaster. <laughs> because well, you know what anybody can make a pretty dish. But the real triumph is when it just seems like whatever has occurred has created a problem is so immense that most people would just turn around and walk away. And my father had this idea that he used to say to me, he says, you know what? The best way of approaching your life's work is to look at what's on your plate. Metaphorically, take the worst thing and turn that, do what you can to turn that into the best thing. Hmm. And then everything will follow. And so it is when I'm working on the set, You think, what is the worst thing that's happening here? Turn that into the best thing. And then everything else just falls into place.
0: Janice, it's been um, a rare pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you.
1: Well, was that rare or medium rare? I want to know.
0: (laughs) It's always rare, rare. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. That was food stylist Janice Poon. You know, Klingons enjoy a plate of serpent worms for dinner, and in the film *Old Boy*, the protagonist eats a live octopus. And of course, Janice Poon has had to make giant space whale meat and fake roadkill guts. But this is nothing new. Humans have always eaten nose to tail, from jellied moose nose to tuna eyeballs to crispy tarantulas to fertilized duck egg. So maybe we ought to suspend the cultural bias. What looks like a plate of writhing worms to me might be an excellent first course to your everyday intergalactic being. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Vietnamese beef stew with star anise and lemongrass.
7: J.M., how are you? I'm doing great.
0: So it seems to me that when you and I travel the world, we always end up eating chicken soup or beef stew or something (laughs) like that, right? I mean, these are sort of common recipes So you were in Ho Chi Minh City and did come across a beef stew recipe, but it's wildly different uh, than what I grew up with and what you grew up with. So where did you find the recipe? Let's start with that.
7: Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually found one of two recipes. I was in what's called District 8 of Ho Chi Minh, and, and it's this kind of... Warren of back alleys and canals and it's the sort of area where the cooking and the eating spills out of the homes and into the street and it's really it's this, it's such a, a, a wonderful community and and on top of seeing all these you know beautiful people talking and gathering you' getting all their cooking as you're walking around you're smelling ginger and garlic and fish sauce and lemongrass and and I'm being, like, overwhelmed as I'm walking around. And all of a sudden, a woman pulls up on her bicycle next to me. And on the back of the bike is a simmering cauldron of soup perched right above the rear tire. (laughs) And with, like, red-hot coals keeping it warm... (laughs) And, you know, and it was a beef organ, cinnamon, coconut milk, garlic, and vinegar soup. It smelled amazing. And what I learned is it's actually a relative of a stew I was in Ho Chi Minh to learn. I was there to learn Bacao, which is a very brothy stew that's flavored with star anise and lemongrass and tons of garlic and ginger and beef brisket.
0: So besides the usual suspects like lemongrass and fish sauce— is it just a function of having those flavor profiles with the indigenous ingredients? Or is there something else about the stew that really marks it as different?
7: Well, you know, it is the classic flavor profile of Vietnamese cooking, which is ginger, garlic, fish sauce, lemongrass. And, and it is that combination. But what made it so appealing to me is the intensity of those flavors. I mean, the, you know, the stew uses a five-inch chunk of Fresh ginger, for example, and and that's just the start. You know, there's a ton of star anise and lemongrass and all these amazing, wonderful flavors that combine in just in, in, in such copious amounts that you get this strong flavor, but also this strong aroma that's so savory and a little bit sweet, and and they, it's just the way they combine that really sets it apart. Now, is
0: this served uh, with rice with? Uh... You know, classic baguette is this served with noodles? How do they serve it?
7: They serve it over rice noodles, and that's all done at the table. You know, you bring the soup to the table and you ladle it over some very tender rice noodles, and you, you know, you throw some garnishes on it, some fresh herbs, and maybe a little bit of chili garlic sauce on it to crank up the heat a little bit. Uh, One of the things that set apart the version that we learned is many recipes call for using coconut milk as part of the broth, but the woman I learned it from uses coconut water Hmm. and she likes that because it has the flavor of coconut but without all the heft
0: so here's a existential question so you 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 go to ho chi Minh city have a beef stew that has just these amazing flavor combinations so unlike what you grew up with does that permanently change your view of a recipe like beef stew like you'll never go back and make the american version or is this just another option
7: I think it has to change it, but I think it changes it for the better. And not necessarily because I would, you know, now only make Vietnamese beef stew. But one, you realize the commonalities that we have across cultures. You know, there are beef stews everywhere. And and you take this kind of common ingredient, and frankly, a common approach to a common ingredient and and bring so many different flavors to that same formula. It's it makes me excited to make beef stew of any variety because you know that it's something that you can play with and experiment with and take in so many different directions
0: jam thank you a vietnamese beef stew with star anise and lemongrass sounds delicious thanks
7: thank you you can get this recipe for vietnamese beef stew with star anise and lemongrass at milkstreetradio.com
0: This is Milk Street Radio. Next up, Bianca Bosker upgrades the PB&J.
7: We'll be right back.
0: You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife, or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet, made all the difference. Available front row massaging seats, available 33 inch all terrain tires, and available multi terrain select. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket. And most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moi Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe Salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Salmon.us to learn more. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: Diana, calling from Vermont.
3: How can we help you today, Diana?
4: This summer, I was canning a lot of rhubarb, and I thought, I have so much canned rhubarb, why don't I try making some rhubarb jam, a rhubarb strawberry. I added strawberries to it. The problem that I ran into was I wasn't able to get it the temperature that was necessary to make it congeal, to make it turn into jam. I think they recommend 220 degrees or so, and I'm not at a particularly high altitude like that. Just wondered if you had any suggestions on what I could do to make my jam gel.
3: I don't think it had to do with the altitude. I'm wondering if it had to do with the sugar. You need the right amount of sugar in order to get it up to 220. Did you cut back on the sugar, I wonder?
4: I did cut back on the sugar, yeah, because I don't like things too sweet.
3: Yeah, I think that might have had something to do with it. Also, um, what kind of pot did you use?
4: I was using a stainless steel.
3: Was it a wide pot? Because that helps. Um, no, it wasn't a super wide pot. It was like a two-quart size. Mm -hmm. Chris makes jam, so I'm sure he's ready to just jump right in. I really think probably it had to do with the sugar. Anyway, Chris.
0: Well, I think you're right. (laughs) If it's mostly water, it's going to boil at 212 and never get higher. A couple things I've found after years of doing this. I went out and bought a copper pot, and I found that it was expensive, but if you're going to do it on a regular basis, it does make a difference, oddly enough. Because it mm-hmm. conducts so well. The second thing i found is mm-hmm. that small batches work better, like making four cups mm-hmm. at a time. If you make big batches, mm-hmm. the temperature is going to be inconsistent depending on where you take the temperature, and it's very hard to control. So smaller batches are better. I agree with Sarah about the sugar. And fourth thing is if you're setting up a pectin, and even though recipes say you don't need pectin for certain things, you do there's a low-sugar pectin. It comes in a pink box. You want the low-sugar one because otherwise if you use the high-sugar pectin, it's not going to set up properly. So that's a little trick that some people don't know. But I think smaller amounts, even if you don't have a copper pot, keep the amount small and make sure there's enough sugar in there. And you can still do a low-sugar version. But with rhubarb, however, there's so little, you know, you're going to have to use a fair amount of sugar to get that up. Also, I don't know how you took the temperature. We're using a instant-read thermometer.
4: No, I was using. A, I think it's called a candy thermometer.
0: Forget those; those don't work very well. They're too slow to react. Okay. I think. And so, I would get an instant-read thermometer with like a six-inch probe, and that way, okay. you can quickly get the temperature. Also, last thing, and I'll shut up. You can <laughs> you can tip the saucepan away from you a little, so when you dip the end of the probe into it, it's deep. And I would swirl it around a little bit, and then you'll get an accurate reading. But if you just dip it in and it's sort of shallow, it depends where you're taking the temperature. You may, in fact, have been at the right temperature, but you just couldn't measure it properly. That's the other issue. Uh huh. Now you know everything I know.
4: Those are great tips. Uh, I'm a novice, I have to admit, but I'm going to try again. All right. Well, thanks, Diana.
0: Diana, thank you.
4: You're welcome, and thank you, too.
0: Hey, take care. Mm. Bye.
4: Bye -bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. That number is 855 426 9843. One more time and slowly, 855 426 9843. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: This is Sandy from Harwich, Massachusetts. How are you? I'm fine, thank you.
0: How can we help you?
4: Well, Many, many years ago, I used to cook with pine nuts and I used them quite often. Then I developed a condition I later learned is called pine mouth. Everything I ate for about a week tasted like dirty garbage. The taste is really indescribable. It happened twice Mm. and I gave up pine nuts forever. I taste when I cook so I don't really think they were rancid. Someone suggested to me that it was the country of origin, but I couldn't find any information about that and I was hoping you could help me.
0: Well, two things. First of all, pine nuts go bad really fast, so if you huh, you probably won't be eating pine nuts anytime soon, but you should keep them in the fridge. And that's true for all flowers and nuts should be refrigerated. But that's not going to cause the problem. The problem is I understand it and I'm not an expert is that they're different species and certain species may cause a reaction in people versus others. So you may just have run across a particular growing region that had a particular species of pine nut to which you're allergic. My understanding is that you're probably not allergic to all pine nuts. It just depends on the species you got hold of.
4: So there's really no way I can tell, right?
3: Well, I was going to say, I think from what I understand, I mean, there's like 20 different species of pine nuts. You know, they're grown in China, Ah. Korea, Russia, Afghanistan, Europe, but also in the southwest of the United States. And I've heard about this thing before, and it's related to one of the species that's grown in China. But I think you'd be pretty safe if you got them from the southwest, the pinyon. They're pretty distinctive. I think you can buy them online, and then you could be eating pine nuts again. And making pesto.
4: Wonderful! You may have solved this 30-year-long problem.
3: Thanks, Sandra. Thank
4: you so much. I'll look for those. Things. Yes,
3: yes. Thanks, Sandra. Take care. Bye. Thank
4: you.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners.
6: Hi, my name is Lee Porter from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and here's my tip. Recently, I made lemon cello, which calls for lots of lemon peels. After stripping the lemons, I was left with the inside of about a dozen lemons. I put them in a bag and stored them in the freezer and thought I'd figure out something to do with them later. One night while making a pasta sauce that called for lemon juice, I thought I'd experiment with grating the frozen lemons into the sauce. It turned out great and now I find myself shredding frozen lemons into all sorts of dishes like risotto, salmon or chicken, potatoes in soups, really any hot dish that calls for lemon or citrus. I hope you, too, can enjoy this resourceful method.
0: If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's regular contributor, Bianca Bosker. Bianca, how are you?
6: I'm doing very well, Chris. How are you?
0: What fascinating thing are you going to regale me with uh, this week?
6: Well, I would like to talk about one of my favorite recipes. You take two slices of bread, you spread peanut butter on one side (laughs) and jelly on the other, and make, voila, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, I've always thought of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich as being kind of the perfect, unimprovable food. But I recently went down a peanut butter and jelly rabbit hole and have since developed a very serious PB&J inferiority complex. There is a variation, for example, I found from PBJLA. That not only starts with uh, round slices of bread that they put into this custom-made contraption to seal the edges and cut the crusts, but they fill it with things like salted pecan butter and apple jam with angostura bitters and orange zest. No. Orange zest in a peanut butter sandwich. Oh,
0: please. (laughs) Really,
6: I haven't even told you about the you know, toasted pineapple butter with sage, basil, cherry tomato jam, arugula, olive oil, balsamic. Okay, I'll stop. But I had a similar reaction, you know, does that count? No. It got me interested in, you know, what is the definition of a peanut butter sandwich? You know, where did the PB&J actually come from?
0: Actually, I don't know anything about its origins.
6: Uh Aha. Well, according to the book Peanuts, the illustrious history of the Goober pea, 1896 was the year that peanut butter sandwich recipes burst on the culinary scene. According to this book, the first one was actually in good housekeeping, and it called for using a meat grinder to grind peanuts into a paste mm. and spread them on bread. Of course. Uh, that was closely followed by recipes for peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches, peanut butter and Worcestershire sauce sandwiches, oh. peanut butter with cayenne pepper and paprika huh. sandwiches. And what is also interesting about its development from there is, you know, I tend to think of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches as being simple, like a wonderfully satisfying, low-cost meal. But the early peanut butter sandwiches were actually a delicacy. They were reserved for high society functions, and they were served at all the fancy mm. tea rooms in New York.
0: Because peanut butter was expensive? It was expensive.
6: It was, you know, harder to make. And so these tea rooms offered things like, uh, you know, peanut butter and pimento sandwiches. Peanut butter with meat and lettuce. Peanut butter with watercress. Um, mm. So again, a little more a little more savory. Even there's a great old one that, that included peanut butter with edible nasturtium flowers. That started to change in the early 20th century. Peanut butter makers started coming up with uh, new manufacturing techniques that brought down the cost of peanut butter, so made it more accessible. They added more sugar to their recipes, which made it more enticing for kids. And in the 1920s, you also had, da-da-da-da, sliced bread, or the sort of commercialization of sliced bread.
0: Well, you, you know, my, my father was born in the 20s, so... In his generation, sliced bread was a novelty.
6: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a game changer, as he can perhaps attest. You know, the 1920s was really what cemented the peanut butter sandwich as a a part of the American diet. During the Great Depression, they were handed out in bread lines. They were also offered as part of free lunches and schools. But what about the jelly So apparently the first uh, printed peanut butter and jelly recipe was in 1901 in a Boston cooking school magazine. It called for three very thin layers of bread and peanut paste along with currant or crab apple jelly. And the recipe creator said, as far as she knew, it was original. But in retrospect, it does seem somewhat mysterious how we settled on peanut butter and jelly rather than peanut butter and Worcestershire, let's say. Um, Chris... Any thoughts yes. on, on how we got there?
0: I mean, first of all, we, we had an increasing sweet tooth since about 1900. Two, Welch's grape jelly, or somebody probably got hold of this and marketed it to death, I would guess. And three, salty and sweet's just a natural. I Those are my three off-the-cuff suggestions.
6: I love those suggestions. Um, Some historians think that it was during World War II that it happened because the U.S. military rations included peanut butter and jelly, so soldiers combine these things. But to people outside the United States, peanut butter and jelly is, is, as it turns out, a pretty perplexing combination. I hadn't realized what a uniquely American dish that is. Um, I also hadn't realized the intense fervor of debate around the proper way to actually make a PB&J. Um, I have to, of course, ask you, Chris, What what is your go-to recipe here?
0: Oh, I, I was going to have to correct you because you had it all wrong. Now, you have to cover both slices with peanut butter and put the jelly in between. You can't put the jelly right on the bread. Sorry, that's just obviously going to make it soggy. So Well,
6: well, clearly you are a professional, but this also raises the question of the ingredients. There was a survey, I think it was Smucker's probably, but they found that American adults prefer white bread over any other kind of bread. Yes. Creamy over crunchy. Yes. And apparently grape jelly is the favorite, followed closely by strawberry. Uh,
0: seedless blackberry, maybe. Mm. But yes. Interesting. Yes, But, you know, Al Roker once told me that It's his favorite sandwich. And I would, you know, I would have to agree. It's right up in the top two or three for me. It's a, it's the perfect thing. And when you mention people in LA messing around with it, it's just, you know, please don't.
6: Well, I thought that at first, but hear me out. As I went further in, I got completely inspired by all of the other combinations that people have recently been making. You know, peanut butter and... Doritos, peanut butter and guacamole, peanut butter and chicken liver, peanut butter with melted Hershey's Kisses and Sriracha. I mean, I was inspired, you know, maybe as a a throwback to that 1896 paprika and cayenne. I actually started experimenting with all of the hot sauces that I could find in my fridge combined with peanut butter. And? Would you like to know the results?
0: I actually not really because I think this is just absolutely <laughs> revolting. But go ahead.
6: Well, I do. I will say just you know for the record, I tried everything from Thai chili to gochujang. My favorite was PB and S, peanut butter and sriracha sandwich, oh, no. which I... I actually think is not going to dethrone the peanut butter and jelly, but was a lesson to me in. Keeping a creative mind around these old staples.
0: Oh, I don't know. Just because you can do it, it doesn't mean that you should do it.
6: I just think sometimes you have to think outside the box or outside the jar of jelly, as the case may be.
0: There is perfection in the culinary universe occasionally. (laughs) And PB&J is just one of those things. So uh, we're going to have to agree to disagree (laughs) on this one. Don't mess with my (laughs) PB&J. Bianca, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. Earlier in the show, I spoke to George Motes about his favorite regional burger joints. Back in 1967, my sister and I spent the summer in Kampala, Uganda, with my mother, who was there to do research. We soon found a place called Christo's. It was the only burger joint in town. The flavor of that burger was absolutely unique, almost addictive, and it's become the lost burger of my childhood. Now, Christo's is long gone, although I did find a 60s photo of the interior recently on Facebook. It's been replaced with upscale eateries. That burger haunts my dreams even today, but I guess I'm glad that it's now lost to history. You have to remember that memories taste better than the real thing. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening.
4: Christopher Kimball's
3: Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer,
4: Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole,
3: Massachusetts. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.